Hi there, and welcome to Prairie Design Lab, a unique podcast that tells stories of daring innovation in architecture and design from the prairies and beyond. I'm Terry McLeod, your host, producer, and writer. Our podcast is built by prairie people who are often graduates, faculty members, and collaborators of the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. That is especially true today. Last week, for the first time since October of 2020, I ventured out of my Zoom room with my digital recorder, triple-vaxxed and double-masked to visit a design builder live on location. Today's episode is number 38 and is called Design Built. Today on Prairie Design Lab, the story of the award-winning Winnipeg-based design and fabrication firm named Design Built. The founder of Design Built is Clayton Salkeld. He was born in small town Saskatchewan and educated at the University of Manitoba. His team is a collection of formerly trained designers and builders, most of whom are grads of the U of M Faculty of Architecture. They have a fondness for the details, materials, and processes of construction. They are acutely aware of the frustrations and complications of having others build a design to which they may not be fully committed. Clayton's firm is focused on the details of their projects, and they thrive on being fully involved in helping them to come to life. He believes that their knowledge of contemporary construction practices and cutting-edge fabrication ensures that they design within budget limitations while appreciating materials and designing for the most efficient tools in the field. I recently visited Design Built's shop and design facility in Winnipeg's Point Douglas. Well, hello, Clayton Salkeld. What goes on in this space? It's crammed with equipment, tools, boxes, cases. What happens here? What we're looking at is our shop. And the shop is where the details come together and where the materials turn into the final product. And so we start with a lot of raw materials in here and we get lots of opportunities to work with solid wood. This is where the team hangs out for a lot of their day. And this is where we see some of the most exciting details and, and the finest of details come together in our work. So what are we looking at here in terms of gear? Like what's in front of us? The cornerstone of the shop is, has become our CNC machine. And one of the things that's really exciting for us about the CNC machine is that we find that it's relatively easy for an architecture grad to come to terms with all of the parameters of it and get really comfortable on it relatively fast. And what is a CNC machine? So a CNC just stands for computer numerical control. And, it, and it's, you know, sometimes we refer to it as our robot, but really what it's giving us is exacting precision. And, and it's a pretty typical machine to find in wood shops these days, but we get a little bit extra use out of ours in that we customize a lot of stuff. And a lot of wood shops have some pretty standard software that spit out really standard designs. And we get to use it to really dive into the, the finest of details and the most custom of things. And which of these machines we're looking at is the CNC? Kind of the biggest one over in the corner. Can we go over and have a closer look? Sure. We have to take the uh, long way around because I think we've got about a 20 foot butcher block countertop uh, getting constructed in our way out of solid oak. And what's the CNC machine doing for you these days? One of the things that I think is very relevant to, to kind of our approach to design and construction is trying as hard as we can to avoid the assembly line when it, when it makes sense. And, and what the CNC allows us to do is be competitive 
in at least for sure in the sheet goods manufacturing world. In the which goods? Sheet goods. Sheet. So four, four by eight sheets of, you know, whether it's plywood or particle core or veneer product, the sheet good production world would otherwise have us having to kind of dedicate a 40 hour a week person to the panel saw. That used to be the tool that did this kind of work. And with the advent of the CNC machine, and especially with how quickly we're finding that designers can pick up on the processes of it, we're able to have people kind of dabble in and out of it without having to specialize. And that's something that's kind of at the core of what we do is, is making sure that we have this varied kind of list of challenges and tasks ahead of us to keep, you know, to keep everything exciting and kind of stay away from sort of the, the cog in the wheel. And where do the products of the CNC machine turn up in the building that you do? For sure, all of our millwork, our kitchen cabinets, uh, a lot of that stuff is coming off of the CNC machine. I think it gets a lot more exciting when we start looking into innovations and inventions and furniture and, and moving it in that world and, and making it do things that, that otherwise might even be overwhelming if you were trying to pull them off without the support of something like this. Many designers and builders use off-the-shelf building materials. Why are you focused on fabricating your own building elements? Over the years, getting any opportunity we can to fill in the blanks with our own custom work has just proven to be so satisfying at the end of the project. I think we do it in a different way than most people and, and we get a really consistent package at the end of the day. Our, our, I think our product is consistent from start to finish and that has a lot to do with our ability to do this custom detailing without having to rely on catalog shopping. And so if we can figure out a way to be kind of cost competitive and relevant and appropriate. And oftentimes there is a really exciting way to, to do all of those things and, and to be economical with beautiful details and not have to bring something else into the project that has a different sheen to it or a different color to it or a different aesthetic to it. And, and so we can get all the way down to toilet paper holders and towel bars uh, that are custom from us. And, and there's a certain DNA that, that flows into potentially the staircase or the kitchen poles. Whatever the case might be, there's a consistency that goes all the way through it. For those who haven't been in any of your homes, can you walk us into one of them? Walk us up the sidewalk to the house. Tell us what we're seeing. Tell us about the front door and then the entry. The first one that comes to mind is a recently completed project uh, on Todd Drive. It's a river property and it comes to mind I think, I think partially because of the river property and the way that we situated it on the site and how good it feels in, in the way that it's perched there. And it also comes to mind because I think some of our evolution as a company towards getting more and more confident with some of the most ambitious details have started to kind of really unfold in that house. But right from the outside, what gets really exciting about it is we've planted it all with uh, native prairie grasses that are kind of maintenance free. Um, and then we clad the exterior of it with cork. And so it's probably the only house in Manitoba that's been clad with cork. And cork is a super exciting material because the sustainability is kind of through the roof on it. And at the same time, it's adding an R value to the project. So it's, it's acting as a siding, it's acting as R value, and, and it's got this really nice weathering patina to it. This house, you know, as you walk up to it, you would see kind of two different masses that are separated by a glass section uh, in the middle of the project. And, and that section is filled in a really ambitious solid oak pivot door um, that's probably 98% glass with the thinnest wood frame that we felt like we could get away with. And all of that stuff is manufactured right here in the shop.
As you walk into this house, it's an age-in-place house, so we were very careful about just keeping transitions really smooth and having no elevation changes in the main area of the house. So what does age-in-place mean? You know, oftentimes when, you know, some our clients are, say, already 60 years old or something like that, and they're now building their dream house, but they don't know how much longer they're going to be able to do a set of stairs or, or anything like that. And so we're making sure that they can you know, their, their dream house that they got super excited about building, that's really amazing to inhabit, um, that they can have the longest lifespan in that house as possible. This is one of those, and so it, the main floor of it functions as a bungalow. Um, it is a two-story house, but the main floor is a self-contained bungalow um, that someday the client will never have to leave. So it's a two-story house on the right-hand mass and then a one-story house on the left-hand mass. And some of my favorite things about that house is I think for myself, my personal aesthetic on, on that house has really been kind of consistently detailed and pulled off all the way through it. Some of the ways that I like to see materials come together and overlap and, and interact with each other um, are as successful here uh, as I've ever seen us do them anyways. What led you into the pursuit of design and building? Where, where did you start out? Well, it's been a bit of a meandering path. I think, I think I was surprised by what the Faculty of Architecture felt like as an education. Um, I definitely came into it thinking that it was going to have a lot more to do with engineering and numbers. I grew up in a small town and, and was always a really hands-on person from a blue-collar family. I've always been very practical, very appropriate. And so at the end of the day, I left the faculty after my undergrad degree because it was time to just start making it real. Um, and, and, you know, our company has always been about being like pretty real about what we're doing. It's not heavily academic. We're building a product that has to be used by an end user. And, you know, that's a, that's a big enough challenge to just make sure that you're satisfying your client without bringing in too much other stuff. So we focus on the house and we focus on the space and we focus on the details. So those guide a lot of our sensibilities. What turned you towards architecture in the very beginning though? When you were a kid in Gerald, Saskatchewan, and then you went to high school in Esterhazy? You know, I think I always liked houses. I always liked kind of analyzing houses. My dad actually was a carpet cleaner for years and I would go and I would help him every now and again and pay attention to what I liked about different houses. There was an interest for sure. Um, I was artistic as a, as a kid growing up, but at the end of the day, I thought I was getting into a faculty that had a lot more to do with engineering and spans and numbers and mathematics. And, and I love that side of it. And I, and I still like, I think it's probably visible in our finished product that there is sort of an engineering kind of vein that runs through our company. Our aesthetic doesn't try to hide the details. We quite often are celebrating the details and, and quite often those details are engineered details. You can implicitly see the structure in, in the built product. What do you mean by that? What can you see? A lot of times we're fine exposing a column, but let's make it a beautiful column. And, and we're fine exposing, you know, how this catwalk is hung from the ceiling. You know, we were talking about the Todd Drive house and it's got a beautiful catwalk that's hanging from the ceiling. A lot of designers would get fussy about kind of hiding how this catwalk exists. We find a lot more satisfaction in celebrating um, how the catwalk is suspended in space. I understand though, when you started out building things of your own, you started out building gazebos? I almost got derailed from my career doing what we do today. While I was going through the Faculty of Architecture, my summers were spent running a company building gazebos. For a little while, I thought that was going to be good enough. I had a really good feedback from one of my first year professors. 
Marcy Eaton. I guess it got me to double down on the architecture field and decide that I was going to stick with it. But for a little while, it was just like overwhelmingly conceptual, the faculty. And I think I struggled with that for the first two years. I maybe even struggled with it for all of my years, but I can look back at it today and I'm super respectful of sort of the expansion of creativity and the expansion of your brain that they're asking you to do because it's the only time in your life that you get to do it. Inevitably, you're going to snap back into reality because at some point there's a client and there's and there's finances and there's a budget and, and you're forced to snap to reality and you're never forced to go uncomfortably conceptual except for that moment of time in academia. So after gazebos, what did you build? What did you do? The first project that we did that's very much in the same vein as this, which was the first project that we did out of the faculty, was myself and, and my brother and a classmate. We renovated and flipped a small bungalow in Fort Garry, and that was kind of our first exposure to the beginning of Design Built. And it hasn't really strayed very much from that. You know, it was two designers and my brother and residential design and build, and, and it's still today, it's it's heavily weighted with designers and it's still residential design and build. And so that's about 17 years ago. How many people do you have with the firm now? I think we're sitting at 18 today. And what kind of roles do they play with you? We're starting to see ourselves specialize a little bit more. Um, we do as much as we can to not have really, really sort of static roles and, and siloed departments within the company. Um, so we do see some overlap between the different departments. I used to always say that everybody's role in the company was the same. We were designers, builders, and managers, um, and we all just did it at different scales. Lately, it's been changing a little bit more to some specialized people that stay in their department, but a lot of the times when the designers come in, they do have this opportunity to move around in what we call three different departments in the company. So after you stopped buying and flipping houses, what was the next step? After a while, we started to get some interest from the market. I don't, I don't even know that we were looking for it at the time, but we had been doing our private thing. We hadn't been trying that hard to be marketing, kind of maybe even thought that we were going to stay in that lane for a certain amount of time. And we started to get interest from the market in general. And so we started picking up projects for clients and they started small. They were basement renovations and decks and fences and things like this, playhouses. And so we started with those projects and the reality of what happens is your own private projects end up getting set to the side. You know, there's daily carrying costs on those. And, and after a while, you know, push comes to shove and, you, and you've given expectations to a client and all of a sudden you have to follow through on those. Through a little bit of time, our plate was full with client-driven work and we kind of stopped doing the, the privately-driven work. So between the, the beginning of Design Built and now, how many homes have you actually built? For new construction builds, I think we're in the neighborhood of a dozen. Our portfolio is pretty equally balanced between major renovations and new construction. And sometimes our ma major renovations are such a large scope and so invasive that they're almost indistinguishable from new construction. How do you recruit clients? We've never tried that hard from the client sort of acquisition perspective. Uh, most of it's happened through referrals and just visibility on the street. Our Instagram account for a few years now has done quite well for us and quite often has us thinking that, you know, we have hundreds of clients out there that we've never met. And, and I think that's the beautiful thing about something like Instagram. When we spoke the other day, I asked you whether there were key concepts that defined your work. And you answered, without missing a beat, restraint and timelessness. What did you mean by those terms? 
Timelessness is a, is a really tricky subject to talk about. And, and it's kind of this, like, sometimes it feels like a search for timelessness and you hope that you can get it right. And, and, and you don't really know, like, will any of us ever know if we've nailed it? And that's sort of this eternal search for what does it take to be timeless? I think one of the main ingredients of timelessness is restraint. So we try to practice a certain amount of restraint. And I think in our work, what that means is that there's never supposed to be one thing that's more special than anything else. It's, it's always supposed to be a consistent package from start to finish. You don't have to look to inject the special or the moment or the, or the really exciting aspect of the project or the really exciting material. A lot of times, you know, we're trying to just build a really simple container, you know, a really beautiful spatial experience. And at the end of the day, I think that trends come and go. But there's a universal acceptance of space that when a space feels right, everybody knows it. And, and that's consistently what we're searching for is that is that really great feeling space. But how do you get to that feeling before the structure is even built? 3D programs in our design process. 3D programs are, you know, they're amazing for communicating with clients. Um, you know, I think that's probably what most people think that the 3D programs are for. But at the end of the day, they are our biggest design tool to really understand what a space is going to feel like. I never practiced in an era when everything was hand drawings and models. And there's something so romantic and so beautiful about doing it that way. I do think you had to be a master of architecture to be able to pull off great work when you didn't get to sort of like really feel it and experience it as you were working on it. At the end of the day, we rely a lot on our 3D programs to tell us when we've got it right or not. And the other thing is experience. You, you learn over the years, what are the things that work to make a space feel as human scale and, and as connected and as comfortable and calm as, as you possibly can. I think some of my most exciting projects were projects when we didn't use 3D programs to design them because the whole course of construction that can be, you know, pretty exhausting sometimes was more exciting because you got to see this thing come together that you only had a certain understanding of before you started building it. Back in uh, 2016, your firm won the Architecture Designer of the Year Award from Western Living Magazine. What did that mean for you to win that award? It was honestly a, an absolute shock. Like we didn't see it coming at all. We had put submission entries in for two different categories, their furniture design and the architecture design. And I still remember getting the phone call and, and she said, you guys won. And, and I was surprised, but she didn't even mention which category yet. And then when she mentioned it was the category of architecture, then I was even more surprised. We had let them know that we weren't architects and that we were only designers and they still awarded us with the architecture category. What do you mean with the distinction between you're not architects, you're designers? What's that mean? So nobody on staff is a certified registered architect. And it's been a relatively conscious effort to go in that direction. There's, there's a lot of extra red tape that comes in that realm. A lot of what we've been trying to do from the beginning of Design Built, uh, even before it was called Design Built, was trying to make architecture accessible and trying to bring the cost of entry down so that we could be a, more relevant to more people's bank accounts. A judge, though, for those awards is the world-renowned Japanese architect Kengo Kuma who said of your portfolio, and I'll quote here, simplicity of concept enhances the relation among materials and extracts maximum expression. Now, Kuma is a world-renowned architect. He did the Japanese National Stadium 
that was used last year in the Tokyo Olympics. This guy is a highly accomplished architect. What did you think when you read what he said about your entries? He had two different quotes within that article that both of them I kind of immediately thought he gets us better than we get ourselves. But I think what he's picking up on is probably the reason he gets it is because it overlaps with the way that he and his firm think about the work that they do. A lot of our inspiration today comes from Japanese architecture. I don't think that anybody else has the joinery details and, and the celebration of materials more figured out than Japanese architecture. And so I think probably what he was seeing there that he was impressed by was the, you know, the small overlap that we have probably with the way that, that he approaches his work. You were uh, quoted in the Western Living article after you won saying, we're designers with tool belts. There's no disconnect between design and built. So what do you mean by that? I think a lot of people don't realize what level we actually sort of like get our hands dirty on the job site. So right from kind of the genesis of doing what we're now doing today, you know, at the very beginning, I was spending 40 or 50 hours a week on the job site. My dad used to always say there's two different kinds of jobs in the world. The, the ones that you shower before you go to work and the ones that you shower when you get home from work. That's very much what this job has always been is, you know, there's not very many of us that have a polished wardrobe with, you know, pleated pants because at any given day you're asked to lend a hand. Uh, even if you are a designer that came into the shop and thought all you were going to do that day was was work on your concepts or work on your floor plans, quite often you find yourself mixing in with the shop or mixing in on the job site. And it used to be even more so. Today we're starting to specialize a little bit more. But I think it comes from an approach that, you know, really I built the company that I wanted to work for. And I could never see myself being a 2,000 hour a year designer behind the computer. And honestly, I wouldn't be that excited to be a designer if I wasn't also a builder. And I wouldn't be excited to be a builder if I wasn't also a designer. Connecting those together, at least at the residential scale, I think is, has always been a very convincing argument for me. But you folks in the room just adjacent here have, what, a half a dozen rather large IMAX where you obviously do lots of work. What role do they play in your practice? The team is usually divided into pretty close to equal thirds, where a third of the company is working on designs and, and management, and a third of the company is working in the shop, and a third of the company is on the job site doing construction. And so on the office side, yeah, it's lots of working in 3D programs, it's lots of working in 2D. You know, inevitably there's a lot of correspondence, there's a lot of emails, um, and, and just staying appraised with the client on, on the updates and the reviews. Yeah, on that side of it, that's, that's where the design work happens. And when this company is working at its best, what's really exciting is watching the scale of design that happens in there immediately work its way out into the shop without missing a beat. Um, and, and watching that designer follow his or her ideas out into the shop and just seeing it come together only just on the other side of the wall. You mentioned in entering the Western Living Architecture Design Awards in 2016 that you are also a furniture designer. Tell us a bit about your furniture design. I think that a lot of the details that tend to make their way into our houses, or at least the feel of the details that work their way into our houses, are pretty consistent with the details that work their way into our furniture. The common thread that comes through all of that type of work is really that I think it's an aesthetic that's born through process. Process for us is actually being the ones that take it from the very beginning to the very end. 
And when a designer takes something to the very end, there's unlimited opportunities for refinement and adjustments and evolution of the design along the way. And just making sure that every detail is dealt with the way that a designer wanted it dealt with, rather than letting sometimes a professional, but a professional in, in their own realm, follow through on the execution of the designs and fill in the blanks, you know, however they see fit. Our process makes sure that there's every opportunity for evolution towards something that gets more and more beautiful and more and more refined and more and more economical as it, as it comes to completion. How do you describe your furniture designs? I think at the end of the day, and I'm not sure where it comes from, we have a certain consistency. Again, it might, it might be the sensibilities that come from our process. Our designs, for whatever reason, have a bit of a mid-century vibe to them. And I don't think it's something that we strive for. I think it's more that maybe we respect the same things that they respected then. There's a certain lightness to the way that we design our furniture. And I think that maybe feeds into the way that we think about our architecture as well. Quite often I'm trying to create, as a team, we're trying to create, you know, the most dynamic space, kind of spatially dynamic, that feels like it's a living space. And light feeling furniture does a really good job of seeing sort of expansive spaces around, you know, every facet and corner and, and shadow and, and detail has space expanding around it when you can design in the lightest way possible. Most of the work that we do in the shop is hardwood furniture. Um, I think the certain investment that comes from a custom commissioned bespoke piece of furniture that we want to make sure that it becomes an heirloom piece. So we work with solid wood almost exclusively on the custom commission stuff. What kinds of woods? My personal favorite is walnut. Uh, it's such a nice material to work with. When it's oiled, there's nothing that feels better than oiled walnut. And then white oak is sort of, you know, on the other side of the spectrum for a lighter tone of wood. White oak tends to come through the shop quite often. Last year, late last year in Glasgow, COP26 drew a lot of attention to the environment as it relates to an array of human practices. Architecture became a big part of that conversation. And I had a conversation last year with Kelly Alvarez Doran, who's a University of Manitoba grad, a very patriotic Winnipegger. He works in London, UK at the moment, but he's a great leader in terms of innovation on carbon reduction in design. Is that something that your firm is able to pay attention to? It's something that I have a huge desire and want to to have our work be as sustainable as possible. What we've found as a reality, and it's really, really unfortunate, is that as soon as sustainability starts to hit the spreadsheet and the extra costs that get involved with building in a really sustainable way, whether it's solar panels, whether it's geothermal, you know, we've found that our clients, and this is just a general measuring of kind of the population that we've worked with, we find that usually the best intentions get laid to the side. It's not something that we advocate for whatsoever. We're consistently asking our clients to maybe shave some square feet out of the project so that we can still keep those intentions in place. What it sort of underscores for us is the reality that policy changes that are needed to make these kinds of things happen and kind of mandate these things because people aren't doing it on their own. One of the things I'm relatively comfortable about in the work that we do, and I think honestly, if I ever went back and did my master's, it would be the topic of what I would look into, is a really, really well-designed house is probably one of the most sustainable things that you can do in the residential world. We don't talk very much about the lifespan of a house, how long it goes in terms of how long does it go in between renovations. There's so many homes that are built today that are, the model has been that they only last for one owner. 
Um, and as soon as it's the next owner, it's time for a renovation. And when we talked earlier in the conversation about restraint, I think restraint goes a long ways into making sure that houses have a longer lifespan. You know, I live in a Wolseley house that's 120 years old and it still has original floors, it still has original window trim. And I think there's so many houses being built today that are never going to get to that level. And I think that the really well-designed architectural houses that are kind of significant and had a lot of effort put into a lot of the details and they're spatially beautiful, those have the best chance of having, you know, a hundred year or 200 year lifespan. The typical home builders aren't talking like that. It, they, they would never think that a floor is supposed to last 200 years. And if you put it inside of a house that's beautiful, you're actually going to find that, that the market will accept that. I live in a neighborhood where there's a huge amount of demolition going on. I live in a house that's, I guess, about 110 years old. There are builders coming through and architects demolishing all through the neighborhood. What do we do about that? I know in Britain, the focus is on restoring existing housing, but here I don't get the sense that that's what we care about. What sense do you make of that? I don't know that restoring existing housing is the right option here. There's something about our soil conditions that have made, you know, a lot of these, you know, a fieldstone foundation is a great foundation, but in our Manitoba gumbo kind of basement, I don't know what kind of a lifespan that has. So to put, you know, a ton of effort into something that's already you know, 110, 120 years old, I'm not sure that that's the right choice from a sustainability perspective. At the end of the day, it's, it's the unfortunate part of it is when the infill houses go in and they weren't thoughtful and they weren't good houses at the end of the day. You know, my hope is that anything that replaces something that, that did have effort put into it a hundred years ago, that we see similar effort put into the house that replaces it. And, and with today's new building technologies, we, we can see these things last substantially longer than they lasted the last time around. I don't think there's any reason that we have a basement. That's like one of the biggest question marks in my head is why are we still building basements? Why, why do you say that? My understanding of a basement is it was originally designed as a bit of an insulator between the space that you use and the cold ground. And the other thing that it's turned into is, is an opportunity to get our foundation below the frost line. So to get our footing down below the frost line. At the end of the day, I don't think anybody should build a house without putting piles underneath it. And so if you put piles underneath it, then you no longer had any necessity to get your footing below the frost line. So once you have piles underneath it, I would say bring that house up to grade and get rid of the basement. And it's just this really unfortunate sort of stigma that comes with a house that doesn't have a basement just because it's been such a normal thing in the way that we build here. With our work, our focus is always on quality of space and you're really up against big challenges trying to create quality of space when a portion of your house is in the basement. At the end of the day, they get used for storage quite often and there's far better ways to figure out how to do storage than to be that invasive with the land, that invasive with the natural drainage, putting yourselves sometimes below the water table and having to figure out you know, how you're gonna remediate the water. It's not necessary, it's unique to our kind of geographic area and I would love to see it be something that the stigma has dropped on and the norms change. You grew up with a house that had a basement and all of the houses in Winnipeg, you know, almost all the houses in Winnipeg have basements. So it's, it's a big shift in the way that we think to, to think that there's a different way to do it that might be more appropriate. Do the homes that you design, do they have basements? 
almost always we end up with some form of a small basement. Usually the basement is smaller than the footprint of the whole house. We usually use it for the utility room and a little bit more. Quite often the footprint on the main floor is substantially larger than the basement footprint. And one of the things that we've run into is the sort of norms for the residential contractors are that they have a basement to work with. They think that they need that basement to run their ductwork and deal with their plumbing. And, and so what we've actually found is as soon as we've removed the basement from the equation, then all of a sudden we're seeing quotes go up and the cost of construction is raising. And, and it's just partially because you're putting somebody in a, in a little bit of an uncomfortable position for them because they've always had a basement to work with. The other day when I was here as well, you showed me some materials that were big slabs with wood material on both sides and a styrofoam center. What was that? So those are SIP panels. So SIP stands for structurally insulated panels. The outside skins are OSB. Oriented strand board, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And then the interior is styrofoam uh, rigid insulation. And they're existing in our shop because we've got a really exciting project on the go. Kind of something that is kind of extra exciting for me because I, I've always really, really enjoyed doing the private work and taking a little bit of risk. And so this isn't for a client. This is a project that, that we're working on ourselves. And we've been calling it our modular cottage. But the approach to it is basically, it's kind of a reimagining of the way that we build houses. You know, I've been around the industry for long enough and, and had to deal with imperfections on my own while I'm on the job site. The inefficiencies that start to stack up from inaccurate building materials being, you know, two by fours and dimensional lumber that have bows in them and things like that. It really causes this ripple effect all the way through the course of construction where we lose efficiencies, you know, with the tools that we have and some of the building materials that we have access to today, we can avoid a lot of these inefficiencies. And our attempt with, with this project is to design a house that is entirely fabricated on computer guided equipment. So almost every single component in the house is supposed to come off of a laser cutter or a plasma cutter or a CNC machine and bolt together the way that it's supposed to bolt together with the tolerances built into everything. And, and so we're envisioning kind of the opportunity to have a house that has higher ambitions in detailing than we've ever had in anything we've ever done and yet probably drop the labor in half is our intention. We're at the beginning of 2022 and a lot of designers are reflecting on their hopes and their fears. When you look ahead to 2022, what hopes do you have, but what fears do you have? Just talking about the modular cottage, I think that's one of the biggest excitements in the company right now is, is kind of getting that first one built in 2022 and seeing how convincing it is. You know, right now it's, it's all speculation as far as how efficient we're going to be and how economical we're going to be, and even speculation on how the market is going to respond to it. We think we have something that's going to work and we think we have something that people are going to fall in love with, but you never really know until you get it out there. And and as far as fears for uh, the future, I, I don't know that I'm that afraid of, of anything that's coming up. We've always done really well hiring from the Faculty of Architecture, and I think we're going to continue to be able to do that. And if we always keep a stream of really ambitious young designers coming into the company, then I think uh, we should be able to keep this going. Clayton Selkut, thank you very much for your time, and thanks for letting me be in the shop after hours. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure and I don't even know that there is such a thing as after hours over here. It's a bit of a playground and there's always something happening in here. The shop really is a dream come true. Thank you very much for inviting me on the show. I want to say a special thanks to our supporting team from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. 
Jason Chan, Jason Shields, and Brandy O'Reilly. There are lots of ways to listen to Prairie Design Lab. You can find us on Spotify, on Apple and Google Podcasts, on SoundCloud, and on our website, prairiedesignlab.com. If you like us, please subscribe. You can also hear us on the radio in southern Manitoba, on UMFM at 101.5 FM, on Wednesday mornings at 1130. I'm Terry McLeod. Thanks for listening to Prairie Design Lab. Talk to you next week. <music>